0: Chapter 27, Part 1 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton. By Maisie Ward. Chapter 27, Part 1. Silver Wedding the consideration of the distributist league that flowed out of the foundation of g k s weekly in nineteen twenty five has carried us some years ahead of our story back then to nineteen twenty six when francis and gilbert had been married twenty five years one of the things taught to me long ago when i first visited them at beaconsfield was that it was properly to be called beaconsfield that it was not named for disraeli but that he, impertinently, had chosen to be named for it. Gilbert often spelt it Beaconsfield to impress his point. Both in theory and practice, he had a lot of local patriotism, and a little of that special pride taken by all men in houses built by themselves. But most of his pride went out to the fact that his home was intensely English. He quoted a lover of Sussex, who said, Among the beech trees of Buckinghamshire... This is really the most English part of England. He felt it no accident that has called this particular stretch of England the home counties. Public life was so ugly just now. The decay of patriotism under the corroding influence of an evil and cowardly sort of pacifism was hateful to him. But England still remained to revitalize the English when the time should come. The oaks that had made our ships could still fill us with heroic memories of nelson dying under the low oaken beams or collingwood scattering the acorns that they might grow into battleships yet if he said i were choosing an entirely english emblem i should choose the beech tree Beckensfield was by one theory named from these beech forests that surrounded it and while the oak suggested adventure and the british lion The beaches suggested rather the pigs that feed upon their mast and villages that grow up in the hollows and slow curves of the hills. The return of the real England, with real Englishmen, would be a return to the beechwoods, which still make this town like a home. At least they did until recently. I shall probably be told tomorrow that several beech forests have been removed to enable a motorist, temporarily deaf and blind, to go from Birmingham to Brighton. It is at Top Meadow, whither they moved in 1922, that I always see Francis and Gilbert in a memory picture. They were to live there for the rest of their lives, and life there was the quiet background for all the vast mental activity and journeying over England and Ireland and Europe and America that marked the years that remained. The house began simply as a huge room or studio built in the field opposite overroads. At one end was a stage which became the dining room at the other end a minute study for gilbert the roof was high with great beams at the study end was a musician's gallery a wide open fireplace held two rush bottom seats on one of which francis sat in winter they were the only warm corners but gilbert did not feel the cold and certainly could not have fitted into the ingle nook opposite the fire was a long low window looking into the prettiest garden where saint francis stood guardian and preached perpetually to the birds. A pool held water lilies, and the flowers that surrounded the pool and the house were also cut and brought indoors in great quantities. Francis loved to have them in glowing masses against the background of books. New shelves had to be added every year as the books accumulated. Big as the room was, the wall space was not enough, and one large bookcase was built out from the wall near the fireplace into the middle of the room as in a public library it looked well there and it screened one from the bitterest blasts for the place seemed full of air from the four winds of heaven the rest of the house was built on this room and looked tiny beside it kitchen and servants quarters two fair-sized and one very small bedroom a minute sitting-room for frances where she kept her collection of tiny things toys and ornaments mostly less than an inch many far smaller, that were the delight of children. She had not, Gilbert remarked, allowed her taste to guide her in choosing a husband. A mixture of Gilbert's strong and weak qualities affected his dealings with his dependents. I'm not sure he felt certain that it was quite right that he should have a gardener. Anyhow, no man was ever paid so highly and allowed to idle so completely as was the gardener I remember there, an exceedingly able gardener when he chose to work to such trifles as the disappearance of coal or tools neither gilbert nor francis would dream of averting and they were entirely at the mercy of a hard case story at all times one man used to call weekly to receive ten shillings for what service no one was able to form the faintest conception should he fail to appear gilbert mailed the money he was found one day fighting another man on the doorstep for daring to beg from mr chesterton from a conventional point of view the maids were inconceivably casual neither gilbert nor francis would have thought it right to insist on caps or indeed on any sort of uniform it is my impression that i have been waited on at dinner by someone garbed in a skirt a sweater and a pair of bedroom slippers and the parlour-maid took for granted her own presence beside frances and dorothy collins as the chief mourner at gilbert's funeral according to bernard shaw writing of dickens marriage between a genius and an ordinary or normal woman could not succeed the gap was too wide dickens had thought he could go through with it only because he had not measured the gap in this theory as in so much else gilbert stood violently opposed to shaw no doubt he must at times have realised that there was an intellectual gap between himself and the ordinary man or woman but it was a thing utterly unimportant character love sanity these things mattered infinitely more and he more than once depicts the genius as painfully climbing to reach the ordinary his views concerning the sexes were equally at variance with those of Shaw and of most of the moderns. He was quite frankly the old fashioned man, and Frances was the old fashioned woman. They both agreed that there is one side of life that belongs to man the side of endless cigars smoked over endless discussions about the universe. Gilbert, in what's wrong with the world, tells us that the voice in which the working woman summons her husband from the tavern is the same voice as that of the hostess, who, leaving the men in the dining room, tells her husband not to stay too long over the cigars. Of this voice, he entirely approved as long as it did not ask to stay on in the dining room. He often said that the important thing for a country was that the men should be manly, the women womanly the thing he hated was the modern hybrid the woman who gate crashes the male side of life no one he said had in a letter of his engagement time take such a fierce pleasure as i do in things being themselves and both he and francis found amusement in that eternal equality which gilbert saw in the sexes so long as they kept their eternal separateness if everything he said is trying to be red some things are redder than others but there is an eternal and unalternable equality between red and green it so happens that in the matter of the wives of great men he had something to say more than once he longed to hear the point of view of mrs cobbett who remains in the background of his life in a sort of powerful silence he combated shaw's notion that the young poet would repudiate domestic toils for his wife rather he would idolise them though this gilbert admits might at times be hard on the wife but the matter is best expressed in the love scene in one of his later romances tales of the long bow that valley had a quality of repose with a stir of refreshment as if the west wind had been snared in it and tamed into a summer air. What would you say if I turned the world upside down and set my foot upon the sun and the moon? I should say, replied Joan Hardy, still smiling, that you wanted someone to look after you. He stared at her for a moment in an almost abstract fashion, as if he had not fully understood. Then he laughed quite suddenly and uncontrollably, like a man who has seen something very close to him, that he knows he is a fool not to have seen before. So a man will fall over something in a game of hiding and seeking, and get up shaken with laughter. What a bump your Mother Earth gives you when you fall out of an aeroplane, he said. What a thing is horse sense, and how much finer, really, than the poetry of Pegasus. And when there is everything else, as well, that makes the sky clean and the Earth kind, beauty and bravery, and the lifting of the head, well... You are right enough, Joan. Will you take care of me? From pages 89 and 119. Frances was not especially interesting intellectually, although she had much more mind than Joan in the story. But above all, she carried with her a quality of repose with a stir of refreshment. Will you take care of me? Neither of them probably had measured at first all that care would mean only bit by bit with the full degree of his physical dependence as we have seen it through the years become clear to her the strenuous campaign in the matter of appearances begun during the engagement might alter in direction but had rather to be intensified in degree as he grew older shaving bathing even dressing were daily problems to him heat the water an early secretary at Overroads heard francis saying to the cook mr chesterton is going to have a bath and oh need i came in tones of deepest depression from the study the thought of that vast form climbing into and out of the bathtub does make one realize how a matter of easy everyday practice to the normal person became to him almost a heroic venture his tie his boots were equally a problem i remember his appearing once at breakfast in two ties claiming when i noticed it that it proved he paid too much not too little attention to dress doctors dentists occultists were all needed at times but gilbert would never discover the need or achieve appointments or the keeping of them still more serious was the question of how the two were to live and do all the acts of generosity that to them both seemed almost more necessary than their own living hard as he worked dorothy collins has told me that when she came to them in the year nineteen twenty six they had almost nothing saved it may be remembered that gilbert wrote to francis during their engagement that his only quality as a shopper was the ability to get rid of money and that he was not good at such minor observances as bringing home what he had bought or even remembering what it was through boyhood and into manhood his parents as we have seen had never given him money to handle and he certainly never learnt to handle it in later life He spent money like water, Belloc told me. Realizing his own incapacity, he arranged fairly early to have Francis look after their finances, bank the money, and draw checks. When we set up a house, darling, he had said, I think you will have to do the shopping. All he handled was small sums by way of pocket money, very playfully regarded by both, Father O'Connor writes, for he had often witnessed the joke that they made of it. What could she do, he continues, when Gilbert went out with five pounds, 18.6, or words to that effect, and came back invariably without a copper, not knowing where his money had gone. At a hotel in Warsaw, the manager entreated him not to bring every beggar in town around the door. He could never refuse a beggar, and the money not given away was probably dropped in the street or in a shop the solution he hit upon was that of accounts at the shops and hotels or anything that could not simply be brought home by francis and placed by his side father o'connor wrote to dorothy collins of the loving care with which francis anticipated all his wishes never was the cigar box out of date you know this and it was long before you came and as toddled to the railway hotel for port or a quart according to climactic conditions she devised and built a studio for gilbert to play at and play in it used to be crowded at receptions as on the night when gilbert broke his arm he had been toying with the tankard that evening and to the detriment of social intercourse but not much i thought we were all in good fettle the ballad of the white horse was just going to the printers that was never penned in fleet street nor the everlasting man he wrote verbosely there in the office At Beaconsfield, he was pulled together, braced. The studio, become the house, almost certainly cost more than they had planned. Building always does, but the two great drains were the benefactions and the paper. Frances signed, as a matter of course, every check Gilbert wanted, but I imagine it was sometimes with a little sigh that she wrote the checks for the endless telephones, telegrams, printer's bills, and other expenses that poured out support a paper which to her seemed chiefly a drain on gilbert's energies that could not but diminish his creative writing in the six years 1927 to 1933 he paid over three thousand pounds into the paper 1931 to 1932 were the worst years in them the checks she had to sign totaled fifteen hundred pounds the last sentences quoted from father o'connor touch upon the deepest perhaps the only deep problem for them both For far, the hardest thing was the struggle against the real danger that he might again drink too much, as he had before the illness that so nearly killed him in 1915. This struggle was rendered especially hard by two elements in her makeup. Frances wanted always to give Gilbert exactly what he wanted, and she hated to admit even to herself anything that could be called a fault in him. She saw the overwork that she was powerless to stop, she could not be aware how great it made the temptation it was for her to remember the old illness to be vigilant without worrying him to help him against himself after the long illness dr pocock had advised total abstinence for some years largely because as he told me gilbert unless specially warned ate and drank absent-mindedly anything that happened to be there he observed this prohibition faithfully until dr pocock left Beaconsfield in 1919. Dr. Bakewell, who succeeded him, advised moderation, but only occasionally found it necessary to order total abstention. It was the amount of liquid he feared rather than its nature. When he forbade wine, he did so because wine increased general tendency to absorb liquid, for Gilbert was always unslakably thirsty. Daily, he drank several bottles of Vichy water or Evian, also of claret at what may be called the open seasons and many cups of tea and coffee spirits he practically never touched nor such heavier wines as port and sherry but even two bottles of claret or burgundy although usually appearing to brighten his intellect might well be a serious strain on the digestion of a man who overworked the mind without exercising the body he loved to sip a glass of wine monsignor o'connor writes and to stroll between sips in and out of his study, brooding and jotting, and then the dictation was ready for the morning. Dorothy Collins once kept a record for a few weeks of the number of words dictated of the book of the moment, usually thirteen to 14,000, about 21 hours weekly, exclusively of journalism, editing, and lecturing. The pressure was tremendous and increasing, nor was it felt by Gilbert only. In a letter to Morris Baring, at the time of his conversion, he writes, For deeper reasons than I could ever explain, my mind has to turn especially on the thought of my wife, whose life has been in many ways a very heroic tragedy, and to whom I am so much in debt of honour that I cannot bear to leave her, even psychologically, if it be possible by tact and sympathy to take her with me. Frances would indeed have been amazed to find herself cast for such a part. Her life had held two tragic events, Gertrude's death and the much sadder death of her brother believed to have killed himself with her faith and her profound affections such an end had stabbed deep yet certainly Frances did not view herself as other than happy in fact i think she very seldom thought about herself at all there was something of heroism in this very self forgetfulness Frances never had good health and for some years had suffered from arthritis of the spine yet intimate as i was I knew this only after her death. My husband was saying lately that had he been asked to choose adjectives to describe Frances, he would have chosen cheerful and well-balanced. Of all the people we have known, we felt she was one of the closest to the norm of sanity and mental health, quite an achievement for a woman suffering from a really painful complaint. Yet, I think when Gilbert used the strong phrase heroic tragedy, he saw, with his great insight that his frail wife beside her heavy cross of childlessness beside the burden of her own physical and spiritual sufferings was carrying the weight of his achievement and that it was not a light one heroic was the right word but tragedy the wrong for this life given to her keeping ended on the note of triumph the treatment of a situation of this kind can of course easily be made unreal In the sort of golden glow cast by the imagination on Fleet Street with its taverns and its drinks, next morning's headache is always omitted, and even the finer, deeper glow of the domestic hearth has its ashy moments. No finite beings can conduct their lives with complete absence of errors or regrets, and any human relationship, however perfect, the people concerned sometimes bore or annoy or even hurt one another that is one of the main things that sends catholics week by week or month by month to the confessional which brings for every man something of the renewal and recreation of daily joy that the genius gilbert saw when he wrote man alive in this story the hero is always eloping with his own wife and marrying her again flora finching's it was not ecstasy it was comfort is common enough view and a reasonably successful marriage but gilbert wanted to keep and did keep the flashes of ecstasy when he wrote man alive he had been married eleven years and he used a thought that had inspired a poem to francis while they were engaged the heroine in the story keeps changing her second name but the name is always a color in one town the hero runs away with her as mary gray in another as mary green thus as a girl gilbert had seen frances in green and had understood why green trees and fields are beautiful had seen her in grey and had learnt a new love for grey winter days and the grey robes of palmers and in blue then saw i how the fashioner splashed reckless blue on sky and sea and ere twas good enough for her he tried it on eternity when they came back from jerusalem gilbert dedicated to frances the ballad of st barbara And we find him again at his old trick, seeing as her throne the great stones of the medieval walls, seeing nature as her background. With all apologies to cynics, I'm afraid that the judgment of the biographer upon all the evidence must be that after 25 years, Gilbert not only loved his wife tenderly, but was still ardently in love with her. A curious prayer of his youth was fulfilled as they celebrated this year their silver wedding a wan new garment of young green touched as you turned your soft brown hair and in me surged the strangest prayer ever in lover's heart hath been that i who saw your youth's bright page a rainbow change from robe to robe might see you on this earthly globe crowned with the silver crown of age your dear hair powdered in strange guise your dear face touched with colours pale and gazing through the mask and veil The mirth of your immortal eyes. The Last Masquerade, Collected Poems, pages 348 to 349. Four years earlier, Frances had aided Gilbert in making the decision for which she was not yet herself ready to do the act which he called the most difficult of all my acts of freedom, and indeed much of that freedom of full manhood he owed to her. Now, after four years of waiting, she was almost ready to join him. She wrote to Father O'Connor, June 20th, 1926. Dear Padre, I want now, as soon as I can see a few days clear before me, to place myself under instruction to enter the church. The whole position is full of difficulties, and I pray you, Padre, to tell me the first step to take. I don't want my instruction to be here. I don't want to be the talk of Beaconsfield, and for people to say I've only followed Gilbert. It isn't true and I have had a hard fight not to let my love for him lead me to the truth. I knew you would not accept me for such motives, but I am very tired and very worried. Many things are difficult for me, my health included, which makes strenuous attention a bit of a strain. I know you understand. Tell me what I shall do. Your affectionately. Francis Chesterton. Between this letter and the next, Gilbert and Francis celebrated their silver wedding. 12th of July. Dear Padre, We have had such a week of alarums and excitements that i had not even time to thank you for the spoons they are just what i like and incidentally just what i wanted i feel so hopeless at getting out of this net of responsibilities in which i am at present enmeshed and to find time for instruction i feel i have a lot to learn and i think after all i had better go quietly to father walker and talk to him gilbert is writing to you himself I know he thinks I've made myself rather unhappy about things, and he is so involved with the paper, I pray he gives it up, we have not been able to talk over things sensibly. Please be very patient with me, because it is so difficult to get clear. My nephew, Peter, is very ill, and I have to spend a lot of time with my poor sister, the parish priest, yours gratefully. Francis Chesterton, Undated. Many grateful thanks. Did you receive your copy of The Incredulity of Father Brown? It was put aside for you, but I do not know if it was sent off or appropriated by somebody else. I have written to Father Walker, and after having seen him and had a talk, I shall know what I ought to do. It is only the mass of work, the paper, my poor Peter, and money worries that keep me on the edge from morning till night. I feel the paper must go it is too much for gilbert four days work always and consequently too much for me who have to attend to everything else trying to settle an income tax dispute has nearly brought me to tears you will understand how difficult it is to get time to think and adjust my conclusions yours affectionately francis chesterton this group of letters is for Francis amazingly unreserved i have never known a happier catholic than she was once the shivering on the bank was over and the plunge had been taken one would say she had been in the church all her life this was indeed a year of fulfilment the year of the completion of their home for they surprisingly acquired a daughter i sometimes wondered why Francis and gilbert had never adopted a child they lavished much love on nieces nephews and godchildren but this was the only fulfilment to their longing until almost old age and even then their conscious act was merely that of engaging a secretary they had had many secretaries before some of whom came with a quite inadequate training and they learnt on gilbert as a friend once put it it was difficult too for the secretary since neither gilbert nor francis had any idea of hours or of the arrangement of work it was quite probable that gilbert would suddenly want to dictate late in the evening or again that francis would ask the secretary of the moment to run into the village for the fish in the middle of the morning hence rather than general discomfort gilbert dictated straight to the typewriter so the shorthand was not needed he went very slowly with many pauses but it is typical of this period that no carbons were kept of letters sent, no files of letters received. In 1926 came Dorothy Collins. Not only did she bring order out of chaos, but she became first the very dear friend of both Francis and Gilbert, and finally all that their own daughter could have been. I remember how Francis talked of her to me, and when she was hoping Dorothy would become a Catholic, which she did some years later and again when she herself was left solitary by her husband's death and how i felt with inward thanksgiving that no child could mean more to her mother but long before this stage was reached came a great lightening of the burden of living no longer would francis cry over income-tax returns no longer would money worry her chauffeur as well as secretary dorothy drove them both to london for engagements and through england and europe on holidays or lecture tours she went with them to america and handled the business of their second tour there now when friends rang up to make arrangements francis or gilbert would say would you ring again when dorothy comes in i'm not quite sure she keeps the engagement book and while dorothy sternly warded off the undesirables it worked out much better for friends as no engagement book had been kept before with any regularity. Now engagements were kept as well as an engagement book. Francis would still deal with the clothing question, but Dorothy handled it if she were unwell, and, in every case, delivered him punctually and brought him home again. A few of the lectures and debates of these years were Is journalism justifiable? An aspect of St. Francis of Assisi. The problem of liberty. Is the House of Commons any use? What Poland is culture and the coming peril progress in old books americanization the bonner novel if i were a dictator the excitement of catholics everywhere had been intense when gilbert came into the church in England, it was almost as great over Frances. Her real wish to remain in the background, her dislike of publicity, were seldom believed in by those who did not know her. I happened to be present at a conversation between the proprietor and the editor of a Catholic paper, which had displayed a poster all over London announcing her conversion. One of them had heard that she was annoyed, and for a moment both seemed a little dashed. Then, said one, of course she was to pretend not to like it and this was at once accepted by the other for both took it for granted that such publicity could in reality have given her nothing but pleasure it was difficult at first for either francis or gilbert to see the wood for the trees in their new environment and it was the greatest good fortune that the year of francis's reception was also that of the new simplification following upon dorothy's arrival for the preceding few years had resembled the hectic period of the lionising of the young chesterton in 1904. requests poured in for lectures for articles for introductions to books are there no other catholics to do things francis asked me rather plaintively of these years monsignor knox said later his health had begun to decline and he was overworked partly through our fault a dip into the post bag brings up some letters from father martindale to gilbert and francis passing on various requests but also realizing the difficulty i sympathize with all desperately busy men i have already protected him by advising small or fussy groups not to invite him now and again the solitary recollection i have of any interest gilbert showed in a review of his books is a remark he made to my husband when father martindale had said that the queen of seven swords francis thompson is here out gilbert repeated the phrase and said eagerly he wouldn't say it unless he meant it would he c c m who has himself been caricatured talking on the radio, typing and eating at the same time, as different from G.K.C. as possible in his pale slimness and almost transparent appearance, was no less busy over a thousand activities. It was interesting that he should ask Gilbert's help, especially in the cementing of Catholics throughout the empire, and that has always so passionately preoccupied him. In the war... He had discovered in military hospitals the ordinary englishman and above all the ordinary australian and new zealander to them and to the apostolate of the sea he was a devote primarily all his later life writing therefore to counsel the chestertons as to which catholic works should have precedence we find him wanting an article for a new zealand paper the only one of its sort in n z and you may say that it affects the entire catholic community of the two islands an autographed book for a hulking devotee of yours and a member of the australia rugger team i think eight of them are catholics this would give enormous joy to him and would be known in no time throughout australia do try to from south africa he wrote to francis you will be surprised to get a letter from me from a nameless place fifty miles inland from the nyanga mountains which you will find variously spelt westward from say Ra on the african east coast this is the reason recently a boy in a kraal here was found cutting pious pictures from a newspaper that he had somehow got hold of he was a good little catholic why are you cutting out that one because this is a great mukuru in the catholic church mukuru is a potentate and will serve from st joseph right along to the pope not to mention the little flower the great mukuru in this case was yourself so there i hope you will smile with pleasure but not try to answer as please god i sail on the thirty-first and ought to be back in london in early september a good deal better thank god please remember me affectionately to gilbert this is the first time a type machine has clicked just here its accompaniment in an otherwise dead silence is a distant gurgling yodel so to say Some native, feeling happy in the brilliantly hot sunlight, which all the same cannot make the thin air hot, I sleep, when possible, under furs, with the occasional insect dropping off the thatch over my head. Later planning a meeting for the Apostolate of the Sea at Queen's Hall, he writes to Gilbert, Similarly, Father McNabb must be given his head, and I have told him he shall be given it i hope to be purely practical and possibly a little sentimental the seaman is everywhere yet for us nowhere he carries everywhere his child's heart man's body hungry unfed soul unique power of feeding his goodness into others the all-round the world man the sea-limited man the man whose life is made up of storms and stars the most secretive and the most open-hearted man of any now i will do all the clumsy stuff You pull it all up into the human sublime, divine humble air. He has no privacy and is more lonely than anyone. He has water and God and must find Christ walking over the waves towards him and no ghost father vincent McNabb, who was to be given his head at this meeting was not a new friend of catholic days but a very old one a friendly critic of my manuscript asks whether he even more than belloc or chesterton does not merit the title of the father of distributism at least he brings into the movement something none other could bring he bases his social philosophy closely on the gospels of which his knowledge is almost unique and his articles bear such titles as the economics of bethlehem or big-scale agriculture in the Gospels. Hatred of machinery has combined with love of poverty to sunder him from a typewriter, and these articles are all handwritten in most exquisite and legible script. His letters have always come in old envelopes turned inside out, and he walks whenever possible and wears a shabby white habit and broken boots. Both Francis and Gilbert loved him dearly, and their rare meetings were red-letter days for both. Besides the link to distributism, the two men were united in caring deeply for the reawakened interest in St. Thomas and his philosophy. The Benedictine, as well as the Dominican, outlook and history especially appealed to Gilbert, and the friendship with Father Ignatius Rice, which had begun almost with the century, grew steadily. He assisted, as we have seen, at Gilbert's reception into the church, and whenever they met after that, Gilbert would remind him, We were together on that great day. High Wycombe was the Chestertons' parish until largely by their help a church could be built at Beaconsfield. At first, this church was served by Father Walker, parish priest of High Wycombe. It was he who had prepared Gilbert for his first communion, and he has sent me some of his recollections. It certainly did not take long to prepare him, for he evidently knew as much as I could tell him. Nevertheless, he said I was to treat him as I would any child whom I was teaching. This, knowing the man whom I was instructing, for I had at the time carefully waded through his orthodoxy twice, was indeed an undertaking of magnitude. However, I went through the catechism. He was importunate that I should use it as he said all the children made use of it very meticulously explaining all the details to which he lent a most vigilant and unswerving attention. For instance, he wanted me to explain the reason of the drop of water being put in the wine at the preparing of the chalice for the holy sacrifice. Father Walker describes Gilbert opening a bazaar and spending lavishly at every stall, afterwards being photographed in his company. Father Walker himself weighs 245 pounds, and the caption was, giants in the faith on his departure gilbert presided at the farewell meeting and made a speech which says father walker gave me no end of delight father now monsignor smith became the first rector of beaconsfield as a separate parish the chestertons loved the little church there which later became Gilbert's memorial, and to which, among other things, they gave a very beautiful statue of Our Lady. But when it had first been dedicated, there had been for both Francis and Gilbert a deep disappointment. Curiously enough, neither of them had any devotion to the little flower who was chosen as patron. They had hoped for a dedication to the English martyrs. Gilbert used to tell Dorothy, who loved St. Therese, that he could not care for her, with all apologies to you, Dorothy. He did not go often to confession, Dorothy says, but when he did go, you could hear him all over the church. Getting up in the morning was always a fearful effort for him, and starting for early mass, he would say to her, what but religion could bring us to such an evil pass? End of chapter 27, part 1.